am so glad that I get to teach today. If you have your Bible, we're going to be going through Hebrews, and the title of our message is that Jesus is better, and this is really the overarching theme of the book of Hebrews, and if you're not familiar, our church over the past year has been going through the New Testament in triads and quads, and over these last couple weeks, we've been tackling the book of Hebrews, and so I get to do kind of a flyover and some life application for that here. So once again, the theme is Jesus is better, but that's really the top of the mountain, right? Jesus is better. It's this really big, lofty comparison. I feel like as a group, we need to build up to that a little bit, okay? So we're going to go through a few smaller comparisons to like warm up and just really become united as the body because these comparisons that I'm going to go through, you know, we're going to be in sync with them. There's not going to be any discussion or dissension among us. It's going to be just, it's facts, right? So we're just going to go through it and warm up a little bit. The first one, and honestly, with the amount of red that I see in the seats today, this first one may honestly be tough, but we have to face the fact that Matt Stafford is just fundamentally better. Is that my Sunday school class back there? Did you guys form like a mob and you're now booing me? Um, Stafford is better than Mahomes, guys. It's not a matter of opinion. It's a matter of fact. Completion percentage, QBR, interceptions thrown, like you pick your stat, Stafford is better. So I'm sorry. These aren't my opinions. These are just facts that we have to acknowledge, okay? So these don't get easier. I'm sorry. They get tougher. Um, maybe you guys will agree with this one, though. Whataburger, better than In-N-Out. Really? Oh, the Californians, of course. Yeah. Um, guys, in every category, Whataburger, better burger, better fries. Um, and let me know. Hey, let me know when In-N-Out, let me know when In-N-Out gets a Dr. Pepper shake, okay? Because for me, like, how are you going to dog on the Dr. Pepper shake? To me, that's the absolute, that's the best. Ew. Oh. Whoa. <laughs> we all know how faith feels now. Um, lastly, okay, we want them back with this one. As far as Wizards go, Gandalf, superior in every way to Dumbledore. I mean, I can't really say why, you know, Sergeant, you guys are working through this with your kids. I don't want to blow anything. But once you read the books and see the movies, you will be convinced Gandalf in every way is better. So good. Now we're on the same page. We are unified as a body, and we can move on to bigger and better things, right? That Jesus is better. The author is unknown, and he is writing to a Jewish community convincing them that Jesus is better than anything that they have known in their lives before. And he's encouraging them to continue on in their faith and following Jesus well. And he is warning them against falling back into any old traditions or, um, or, or ascending any of these Old Testament heroes above Jesus. Because what Jesus has done with the Old Testament is he has fulfilled it. And we're not to look back and worship those things. We're to move forward with him. And the author does this by comparing Jesus to several things throughout the letter that these believers would have held closely to according to their religious tradition. Even things that maybe they would have been tempted to elevate above Jesus and in their hearts worship above him. And so the author lays out a case as to why Jesus is superior in every way to these Old Testament heroes and traditions and that this community would have likely held in very high esteem. So if you have Hebrews, we're just going to go through it quickly. You can... You can make some notes. We're going to fly over a lot. I wish we could be more in-depth, but we're going to hit some major pieces of why Jesus is better. In Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, the, the author does not mix words. He starts off by saying, in, in no uncertain terms, Jesus is it. He is superior. He is God himself. And he says this, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also 
he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. He is sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand at the majesty of heaven. So the author is laying it out right off the bat. Jesus is it. He is God. He is the exact representation of himself in human form. So don't be confused about it. Jesus is it. And what the author is going to do in the rest of this letter is talk specifically about Jesus' superiority in regards to several Old Testament figures and traditions. So I want to go through those briefly. If you read Hebrews over the last couple of weeks, you may have been a little perplexed. Why are we comparing Jesus to all these things? Hopefully this maybe gives you a framework uh, to now kind of digest those things with. So first of all, that Jesus is superior to the angels. The author tackles this first in Hebrews 1, 4 through 9. But these verses in 7 and 8 of chapter 1 really encapsulate this argument that Jesus really is over the angels. He says this, and speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. So angels are created beings. They are made to be servants. Whereas the son of God was not created, he is creator and he sits up in heaven next to the Father. So the comparison of angels and the Son, they don't match up. The next one is that Jesus is greater than Moses. And this would have been a little bit tougher for them to, uh, to swallow because Moses is one of the great fathers of our faith. So in 3, 1 through 6, he tackles this idea that even though Moses was one of the most faithful servants to God in the Old Testament, that Jesus is superior to him, Right? Because compared to Christ, he does not match up. Christ was, was not um, a servant in the way Moses was. He was not a part of God's plan the way Moses was. Jesus was God's plan. So while Moses got to play a role within God reconciling his people back to himself, Jesus himself was the reconciliation. You see what I'm saying? So Moses played a part, a big part, but Jesus really was the plan. And so in this, there's no comparison that, that Jesus is over Moses. Next, he talks about how Jesus is better than any high priest. And this is in Hebrews 4, 14 to 5, 10. Now, the high priest of Israel was a member of the, the Levite nation who was selected to be a mediator between God and his people. And if you need a little OT review, we'll do it quickly. The high priest, um, he had several roles, the, the most important of which and the one the author is comparing him to in Jesus here is that on the Day of Atonement, he would enter the Holy of Holies, which was the one room where the Spirit of God resided, and he would be a mediator between God's people and himself, and he would give sacrifice for the people. But the rub was this, that this high priest, he himself was human, and he himself had sin, so he would have to go through intense ritual cleansing. He would have to give sacrifice on behalf of his sin before he entered the Holy of Holies, because God cannot be around sin. And so it was a system that existed, but it wasn't perfect. And the author shows us that Christ is superior to any high priest in history. Even Aaron, who's the most famous high priest in the history of Israel, the brother of Moses, because unlike his sinful predecessors, Jesus did not have to offer sacrifice for his sin before approaching God. Jesus was blameless in every way. And because the spirit of God tabernacled or resided in him and now resides in his followers, the temple and the need for any kind of human high priest went out the window, right? It was outdated. First Timothy 2.5, Paul writes and he says, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, and that is the man of Jesus Christ. 
So we see that Jesus has done away with that old position of high priest. Hebrews calls Jesus our ultimate high priest, that he is now the mediator between us and God because of what he's done for us on the cross. So we no longer need another human being to access God. Jesus is that bridge for us. You guys are doing a great job um, staying locked into the OT verbiage here. I have one more for you. That Jesus is better than the old covenant. We kind of alluded to it a little bit, but in the Old Testament, people would have to give the sacrifice of an unblemished animal um, in order to uh, account for their sins, in order to be forgiven by God. But Jesus brings the new covenant, which says that because of his perfect life, that he is the suitable substitute for us, right? He is the ultimate substitute that God saw fitting to forgive our sin. And his sacrifice, unlike the ones in the Old Testament that had to be given annually or weekly or daily if sins piled up, Jesus' sacrifice occurred 2,000 years ago and is good for us today. And it's going to cover our sin and our kids' sin and every generation until Jesus one day returns. Hebrews 8.6 says that the new covenant of Jesus' blood is established on better promises than the old one. What does that mean? Well, that means that the old, the old covenant was, it's not like God thought this was really great and then it didn't work out so well and he had to think of a plan B. It means that God knew Jesus would be the, the payment for our sins all along and that that old covenant way of doing things was a placeholder until it was time for Jesus to come uh, step down into his role on earth here. Hebrews 8, 8 through 10 kind of shows us this transition in God's mind. It says this. It says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And then in 8.13, he says this. It says, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is, what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. So this isn't something that's hanging around and is still a viable way for us to reach God. Jesus has offered us a better promise, a better cup, a cup of his own blood, right, that he paid for our sins. And so he now is our sacrifice, that we don't have to go and make a sacrifice, which is such a good thing because... I'm no good at catching goats and chickens and things like that. So, okay. So you guys have done great. I appreciate hanging with me. All of that Old Testament stuff was to point to this fact here, that Christ was better than anything the early church would ever encounter, and that the same is true for us today. Now, even though that, that statement is true for both of us, it was probably understood in different ways, because our struggle is probably not to esteem Moses higher than Jesus. That's not what we're struggling with. But if we're honest, sometimes in our lives we can be misled and believe that some things in our lives are better than Jesus. Is that right? Like, I know I can. I can be fooled and from time to time believe that something else is actually better than Jesus, which makes no sense on paper, but in my heart, from time to time I go there. I think this comes out most in our view of sin. Sin is anything that separates us from God, and God commands us not only to avoid sin, but to flee from it and to repent of it. Guys, when I was young, I would view sin like the apple or the fruit in the Garden of Eden, right? This low-hanging piece of fruit that is delicious, and you just it's right there. You want to take it. It looks so good. And sin to me was like, I really want to do this thing. It sounds really awesome. I bet it would really fulfill me. 
Unfortunately, I can't because I don't want God to be mad at me. And even though this would be way better for me than anything God has, I'm not allowed to do it. And that's a really childish way of looking at sin. But if we're honest with ourselves and if I'm honest with myself, like I fall into that still. I, I can view sin as this forbidden fruit that I really want and God doesn't want me to have because it would satisfy me so much. Like Satan feeds me that lie and I, and I eat it sometimes. But that is not true. Guys, this view of sin misses the point of God's command to avoid it. He doesn't separate us from our sin because it's more fun than he is. He does it because it's inferior to his plan for us in every single way. Sin is less gratifying, it is less fulfilling, and it goes against God's plan for your life in every single way. Sin always takes away from your flourishing. It never, ever adds to it. Nowhere in human history has anyone set out to sin done it and felt better about it in the long run. It's never, like, it's never happened, okay? Ever, 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 and it's never, ever going to happen. God keeps sin from you the way that a mother keeps a hot stove from her child, right? He's not being petty. He's not being controlling. He's not afraid that you're going to have more fun with that hot stove than with him, right? It's like, this can hurt you. This is not good for you, so I'm holding you back. God forbids sin in our lives because he knows that he is better than the sin that we crave. Can we be reminded of that today? Because I feel like I need that reminder sometimes. In his short essay, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis writes about sin in this way. This is so good. And if you haven't read Weight of Glory, please read it. It's short and it'll change your life. He says this of sin. He says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Is that not like right into your heart? God says, I don't see your sinful pursuits as too wonderful and like I'm afraid you're going to like them more than me so please don't do them that's not God's view of sin it's like man I see you plotting and sinning in your mind and you, you want to do it and I know you think that it's going to fulfill you and you think it's going to make make you happy but to be honest like you're dreaming so small like you're, you're playing in the mud and I want to take you to the beach like you have no idea the good things I have for you and if you will just trust me and leave that mud pit that you are so enthralled with like, I'm going to take you somewhere great. This is God's view of our sin, and it's where we are way too often. Philip Yancey is a Christian author, and he lives in Colorado Springs, and uh, he resolved, he and his wife resolved, to take their kids to Disney World one time. Um, Garen told this story in a message about a year ago, but it fits so well I had to tell it again. So apologies if you've heard it, but it's, it's going to fit in. So he and his wife are getting ready to take their kids to Disney World. They're going to drive it. Um, God bless them. Wow. Not me. Um, so they, they take off from Colorado Springs, and their first night is actually in Junction City, which is not too far from here. And they stay the night with their kids at this motel in Junction City, and the motel has a pool. And the kids are psyched, and they're like, yeah, we got a pool. And they're loving it. They're playing it. Even the next day, when Philip Yancey and his wife try and get them out of the pool and into the car to keep driving towards Disney World, the kids do not want to leave the pool. They are like so upset that their dad would ask them to get out of the pool and leave this fun place to get back in the boring car because they cannot conceive that they're going onto something better, right? They're throwing this fit. 
Dad, you don't understand. We just want to play in this pool. Like, just leave us alone. You don't, you don't get it. This is the best thing ever. And so often, like, we laugh at that, but that's, that's our view. That's our view of God, and that's how we live our lives. Like, we've got this track, and we're so convinced it's good. And if God will just get out of our business and let us enjoy this, like, it's the best thing ever. And you don't realize you're playing in a pool in Junction City. And if you've been in Junction City, you know that's not a good place to be, right? Like, God has something that is so much better for you. He's trying to take you to Disney World, and you won't do it because you don't want to let go of what you've got. We've got to trust that God is taking us somewhere better than where we currently are. Dallas Willard is attributed with this quote. He says, we must first believe that God is both good and great if we're going to trust him with our lives. Essentially, Willard is saying that we will only submit our lives to God when we believe that he has our best interest at heart and he also has the ability to make it happen. But so often, we don't, like one of those two things don't line up with us and so we don't trust him. Guys, these three quotes and these stories, they all point to this, that at the root of our sin, too often is the notion that we know what we need to be happy, right? That only we can make it happen, and we know better than anyone else, even God, what we really need, and that our plans are superior to anything God could dream up for us, and even if God did know what we truly wanted, he probably wouldn't give it to us, right? We've got to go get it for ourselves. This lie is at the root of our sin more times than not, that we've got to create our own good, that we can't trust God to get us there. We've got to do it ourselves. Guys, I'm here to tell you, there's nothing further from the truth. That is such a deep-seated lie in our hearts, and nothing could be further from the truth. But I want you to hear that from somebody else. It's one thing to hear it from me, but I want to bring somebody else who is living this out in big ways. So Lee, if you would come up here. Lee Alderman's going to speak to us. Lee, I am so challenged and encouraged by your story because you are truly all in on what it means to follow Jesus because he is better. So I'm going to snag your mic because it's over here, and the stage is yours. Lee, we want to hear your story. Here you go, sir. Well, I want to share with you that Jesus' plan for my life is unbelievably better than my own plan. And uh, <clears throat> one of the scriptures that challenged me um, was Matthew 6, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. So if you seek God and his kingdom, everything is added to you. I'm thinking, is that really true? And so I put him to the test. I know you're not really supposed to test him, but I wanted to. I had to, to increase my faith. There's another verse also that struck me. was Deuteronomy 31.6. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. And I thought to myself, is that really true? If I jump off of a cliff, is that going to be true? Well, I want to share a little bit of my story. I was born again in 1997. I prayed one night to accept Christ. I got up early the next morning and started reading scripture. Moments later, as I sat there, I was baptized with the Holy Spirit. I had finally found Christ. After searching for many years, I was ecstatic. As a new believer, I wanted to love him and serve him with all of my being. But at the same time, 
that year, I graduated from KU with a PhD in education and child psychology. My desire was to be a college president. I planned my career path with great enthusiasm. Within five years of getting my PhD, I landed my first presidency, and I hoped that there would be several more. Although, simultaneously, lurking deep inside my heart, was a strong desire to leave everything and serve the Lord and see if he is true. I dreamed and pondered, will he really catch me if I jump off the cliff? As career-related politics and other issues increased, I lost my interest in the presidency. With God's prompting, I quit my job. In faith, I waited for the Lord to guide me. I was exhilarated and terrified all at the same time. I had no income and three little kids. I gave up my career, my income, my PhD to seek and serve the Lord. Because he said so, I sold everything I had. I sold my home, my really nice, I had, I had probably the nicest minivan you could buy, everything, every luxury thing in it, really, it was beautiful. I cashed in my retirement account, Theocraft, Education, you know, you get really nice retired. Cashed it all in and gave it all away to start a ministry called Shiloh. <clears throat> I went two years with no paycheck serving the Lord, me and my family. Somehow he provided. I didn't understand how he provided, and I do not understand now how he continues to provide, though I realize that he is faithful and that he rewards those who believe he is real. The Lord caught me as I was free-falling financially in life. His word is true. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He has been so good to me and my family. Living on faith was hard in the beginning because of the unknown. Living on faith and trusting him to provide is one of the most difficult things I have ever done in life. It was hard, and at times I thought of quitting. But I had to press on to live out on a limb in faith, pure faith. His faithfulness has far exceeded anything I could ever imagine. The blessings come so fast we can't keep track. My family has been paid back over and over and over and over for everything we gave up. And I am hesitant to tell people of the many blessings we get because at times they are so outrageous. Because he is an outrageously loving God that wants to outrageously bless those who are faithful. Serving Christ is worth everything I ever gave up. His word is true. His mercy and blessings are limitless. I am at peace with joy in my heart because of serving Christ. I put him first, and he treats me like a king, when in fact he is the king. He is worth everything. As missionaries, we have led several hundred people to Christ here in Emporia, and we have seen several hundred people healed here in Emporia. Trust him, serve him as you are prompted. Even though it may seem scary, you do not have, it, it, it'll seem scary because you don't really have a plan a lot of times. And I'm going to tell you, you probably won't have a good plan, and you probably won't have the wisdom you need, you won't have the resources you need, but that is all good because then that gives him a chance to work in your life 
and to prove that he is trustworthy. Casey Ryder, one of the great local missionaries, once said of living on faith for the Lord, it is the greatest kept secret. Because God says so, be strong and courageous in your plan to serve him. Even though it will cost you something, jump off the cliff for him. Serve him. He is faithful. Be the one. You be the one today to say yes to serving him. Jesus' plan was much better than my plan for my life. And I want to close with a prayer. Let's pray. Father God, let us know how much you love us. Let us know that you are in control and not us. Give us a desire to trust you and serve you as you have called us to make disciples of all nations, to take care of orphans and widows and to feed the hungry and to help the least of these. Remove doubts and fears from our hearts about serving you. Give us a spirit of power, of love, and of a sound mind. Inspire us, Father, to start serving you today. Thank you. And thank you, Lee, so much. Yes, please. He deserves the applause. If you know Lee and his wife, Carol, you are blessed. They are incredible. And um, yeah, Lee, thank you so much, man. This, this message, it, it is encapsulated by your life. So appreciate you. Okay, we're going to wrap up with three life applications because we've got to walk out of here knowing how to live out this, this claim that Jesus is better. So three things that Jesus is better than in my life. First of all, Jesus is better than my idea of life. Towards that same Towards the end of that same essay, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis discusses the importance and the gravity of being blessed with life here on earth. And he articulates so very well why our lives here are about so much more than our time on earth. In that essay, he reminds us that everyone is an eternal being that will spend forever somewhere and that we have a hand in moving them towards either destination. This is so good. He writes this in Weight of Glory. He says, remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them, that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people, and you have never talked to a mere mortal. Man, that quote, like, gets at me. Because he reminds us that all these little interactions that we think we have during the day that don't really mean anything, they have eternal significance. And Lewis wagers that you have never simply had a conversation with a girl at the checkout counter at Dylan's. You've never just started up um, and chat, started up something and chatted with a neighbor before dinner, and it's not meant anything. He says every one of those interactions moves those people, those eternal beings, towards their destination one way or the other. And it's such a cool way to live life, right? Like, that's humbling. That's, that's, that's insane because we were not simply made to be pleasure seekers that are trying to get what we can while we can, even though that's what our flesh tells us. But we get to contribute to the eternal destination of those around us. We get to be partners with Jesus and building his kingdom. Like that's, that's the biggest call of all. 
And so life with Jesus, it's meaningful, it's missional, and it blows our small idea of what it means to exist out of the water. That's why Jesus is better than my idea of life. The second thing Jesus is better than are my idols. Jesus is better than my idols. Tim Keller says this. He says, an idol is anything that is more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. So while no one here is probably hiding an altar, like in their garage, they're going to go home and worship in secret. Like we all have inner idols. Garen talked a lot about this during his series on idolatry last year. Um, things that we tend to elevate above Jesus. And in his book, Gospel and Life, Keller has this, this grid here. And he talks about the four most common idols in Western Christianity. Power, approval, comfort, and control. Maybe one of these looks familiar to you as you kind of gloss over it. And guys, we think so often that the idols that we give into, we think they're going to improve our lives. We think they're going to complete us. But as you can see on this chart, that is never the case when anything other than Jesus is on the throne. Um, like for me, I, I see myself up here. I see my control idol right there. And I realize that as a control freak, my greatest nightmare is uncertainty. So you can imagine the last two years, pretty uncertain times, like it's been hard. I realize that with my control idol on the throne of my life, that those around me can feel condemned by my control and that my problem emotion is worry, right? And so if I give my life over to any of these things, it doesn't take me to a fruitful place. I know that in the short term, it makes me feel more in control of my life. It makes me feel more secure, whatever it is for you. But the truth is that anything on the throne of your life other than Jesus is not gonna take you to a place of flourishing. It's gonna take you here. I, like I, I, I dare you to read that, name your idol, and then say it's wrong. Mine is true. The last thing Jesus is better than is my secret sin. And on paper, this is a no-brainer, right? Like, Jesus is better than my, or yeah, he's better than my sin. My sin is not good for me. I need to resist sin. We know all these things. But reality is more complicated because in reality, we can become so dependent on our sin that it's, it's really hard to cut out of our lives. And we end up hiding our sin from others and we end up making excuses to ourselves why our sin belongs there. And it's really tough to part with. They can become this crutch that we lean on way too much. There's a, there's a story in The Great Divorce, which is, always, which is also written by Lewis. And if you haven't figured it out yet, our head pastor has us read a lot of C.S. Lewis. But in The Great Divorce, there's this story. The narrator goes to this other world. It's like this afterlife. And he's observing what he sees. And he sees this hunched over ghost. And it's kind of coming towards him out of the distance. And he's got this salamander on his shoulder. And at first he sees this ghost scolding the salamander saying, I hate you. Go away. I don't want you. But then the salamander starts to whisper in his ear and he kind of calms him down. And by the time he gets near to the narrator, he's okay with him again and he's fine with the salamander being there. Well, later in the story, the ghost encounters this big, bright angel of light. And the angel tells him, he says, you know, if you want to, I could remove that salamander for you. And the ghost at first is like, oh, that'd be great. I hate this stupid thing, you know, like I've been trying to get rid of it forever and I can't. And the angel says, well, all I've got to do is reach down and I've got to grab it and it'll burn you. It'll hurt, but I'll grab it and I'll kill it and it'll be gone forever. And as he starts to realize that this is, this could become a reality, the ghost gets afraid and he says, you know what? Um, he's actually not that bad. He hasn't been acting up lately. My life's actually okay. I can manage him, right? Does this sound familiar, us managing our sin in our lives? And he says, it's okay. Well, 
a conversation ensues, and the angel convinces the ghost that it's good for him to kill it. And so the ghost gives him permission. So the angel reaches down, and he crushes the salamander, and it dies. And it, it, it's on the ground, and it's dead. And as the salamander dies, you see the outer shell of this ghost crack away, and this new, big, bright man um, comes up out of the shell, this, this person who was free for the first time in his life. And th- that's not good enough. It gets better because the salamander, which is now dead on the ground, begins to crack and crumble. And out of it grows this big, bright, strong, muscular horse. And this new man gets on this horse and he rides off in the, dis- in the distance with it. Now, I am not a very smart person. So I had to read this a few times. I had to ask for some help to understand because the great divorce is very allegorical. It's got a lot of imagery. But I think what Lewis is painting a picture of here could be our sin. It's this salamander on our shoulder that at first we hate it. We know it. When I mentioned secret sin and you saw it, you knew what yours was. Like you didn't have to search your heart for it. You knew it. And you hate it. You want to get rid of it. But in the moments where your sin defeats you, it whispers to you and it talks you into keeping it around. Right? Just like that salamander did. And it's hard to give up. But if we can find the strength to submit it to Jesus and allow him to kill our sin within us, Not only are we going to emerge and be fully alive, but the sin that we hated so much and is now dead, Jesus will renew that as well, and it will become this beautiful thing, this story that can affect others too. Like this is the hope of the gospel right here, that Jesus takes our brokenness, he takes our ugliness, he takes the things that we're ashamed of and, and, and have power over us, and he turns them around for something that is good for us and glorifying to him. That's why Jesus is better than any sin that you want to keep close and keep secret. If you can submit it to him and allow him to kill it, man, your life will be free. So those are my three. Um, We've been talking about that Jesus is better, but I want to end with this question, why? Why is Jesus really better? Well, in Hebrews 12, 28, it says that we stand to inherit a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Guys, Jesus is better because he himself is life, and he promises life forever in his kingdom if we will follow him. And I know that it sounds too good to be true, and I know it sounds very pie in the sky, but one day Jesus is returning to earth, and he's bringing a kingdom with him that we will reign in that kingdom alongside him, and it will be free from sin and shame and disappointment and sickness and guilt and death, and it's for anyone who confesses that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead. Guys, this is why Jesus is better. This is the hope of the gospel, not just for eternity, but for your life today, that he offers you something better. And so we know the words of Hebrews were true 2,000 years ago when they were written, and we know they're true today as well. So guys, I leave you. I leave you with this challenge and this encouragement, because it really is a two-sided coin. To lean into Jesus, no matter your season, no matter your crutch, no matter your sin, no matter your situation or what your feelings are, lean into him because he is the only source of true life and his way, I know it doesn't feel like it, but his way really is better than your way. His way really is better than my way and he deserves it. He deserves to run our lives more than we do. So 12th, you are dismissed to go and live lives like Jesus is better because he truly is. And happy Thanksgiving. Have a good week.